The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 15, verse 22 through 32. The word of God speaks to us like this. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. This is the very word of God to us. Well, good morning. My name is Chad. We are glad you're here. We're glad that we get to come together. Again, we're a church plant that is putting this whole thing together. And God's been really good to us over the past couple of years. He's been good to us from before we started meeting. He had started to put pieces together long before this was uh, a congregation out here in Yukon. He has been good to us up until this moment. And he continues to be good to us right now in this time. We trust for his future grace. And some of that is because of of things that we've directly experienced. And some of it is because all of scripture points to this God who is good. And this morning we come to a passage which can be really familiar. We are at the cross. All of Mark has been leading to this. And broadly speaking, the, entire, the entirety of this Bible has been leading us to the cross right here in this. It's something that we could easily kind of glaze over and be like, I've heard that before. We, we talk about that all the time. And yet I, I hope that this morning you can come and, and see it fresh. See it fresh. Because I, I just, I feel like we're in a time, we're in a, a spot where we're just surrounded by big questions. We have questions all the time of like, what is even the purpose of life? What is going on? What am I even here for? We have these questions that we experience things in our own life, or we turn on the news and we see things like Ukraine in which these are generationally hor- horrific actions that are happening. Again, there's so much talk after World War II of like, never again, never again will we see certain things. Never again will we, we let certain things happen. And then we like turn on the news every day. Uh, we go to whatever uh, website we're at and, stuff, and you're like, how is this happening again? Like heroic or, or horrific things are happening right before us. And we're like, what is even the point of life? And then you take it one more step forward because you can see these terrible, terrible, awful things happening. And then you, the next moment you, you'll see on the whatever your feed or someone standing up and say, none of that's true. It's all made up. It's all fake. You're like, what is true? What is true? I know in my own life, I've had moments where it's like, God, man, if you're true, I need a sign. I need, I need a burning bush or, or like a burning bed talking to me and telling me what's right here. I need a sign from you, God. If you are true, you're just going to have to show yourself and then 
I will believe. Well, where we are in Mark is the loudest, clearest, biggest sign imaginable. It's not the first sign. It is one enormous sign after hundreds of signs that have come before. And so my hope today is that we would be people who could stand in this moment of craziness and say, God, like, help me to see what you've done with fresh eyes. Help me to believe in faith. And so we're going to do this in a couple ways. We're going to walk through just two turns in this. We're going to look at the text and we're going to see the rejection and death of the king. And then we're going to turn and see how this text in particular, but the larger story vindicates this king as well. We're going to see that Jesus is not only the king who's come, but he's also our high priest and he is the sacrifice. He is all of those pieces. And so I want to pray for you and I want you to pray for me and we'll dive into this. Jesus, help us to see with fresh eyes. Maybe for the first time, help us to have eyes to see what you've done. Help us to have eyes to see your goodness, your grace. Help us to be people who don't just come uh, with religious, re- religious actions, but that we actually come in faith to trust and believe in you. And so God, meet us this morning. Meet us and, and, and help us to see that you are a good and loving God and you've given us everything we need to follow after you today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so let's dive in right here and start with the idea, this, this torment, this uh, rejection and death of the king. And here we go. We're going to pick it up in verse 5, or verse 1, I'm sorry, uh, of chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus. Hear that. The, the, here's this rejection right here in this moment. They're, they're having an illegal trial, and, and then they bind him. They led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Recognize, we've been talking about the Bible in context, and we've read through Mark uh, one page after the next, one section after the next, and where we've come from. So a few weeks ago in chapter 13, Jesus had been teaching in the temple. He walks out, and then he starts to talk about the temple. They say all these great buildings, and he's like, man, that thing is going to be destroyed. That's going to come up for us later on in this. They're making accusations. They had gone from this moment outside of the temple, and ultimately they're there for Passover. We'll get to that in a second as well. They're there for Passover, and and then they have this meal to celebrate, to remember. They have this meal that they come together for this feast, and, and they're right here together in this upper room, and Jesus changes everything, right? 
He changes it. He points forward to his body and his blood. He points to it. They leave that meal. And they head out to a garden where they pray, in, in which the crushing of Jesus is in this garden of Gethsemane, where he experiences God's wrath for the world in this moment. From there, he gets arrested. We, we, they show up. He's betrayed with a kiss. He's arrested uh, outside in the dark. And then we have last week what Bryce led us through is almost an aside from the Jesus account. It, it looks at Peter and what happened with Peter and how Peter so quickly denied him. And right here where we are in 15 comes directly back camera focus on Jesus. Here's Jesus in this moment, accused, rejected. And while this, this trial is a sham, this trial is illegal and it is a sham, the torment is anything but. The torture that he goes through is not a sham. It is the real thing and he experiences all of it. Notice where it picks up. We'll get it in, in verse 16. It says, and the, and the soldiers led him away. Inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. See, this is going to be a recurring theme. They put him in royal robes. And not because they believe, but because they're mocking him. They put him in royal clothes, a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. This king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. You see, this king of the Jews is beaten. He, he's He's led out there. They're mocking him as king right here in this moment. And this, this may or may not be familiar stuff to you, but just kind of get the picture in your head that the king of kings is present. This Jesus is present right here in this. He is the king. He remains silent for all of it. And yet they're close enough to him, putting on the purple garments, putting a cloak in a, in a crown, saluting him and bowing down, and yet none of it is real. We have to ask ourselves, like, why does he stay silent in all this? Why the one who could call down a host of angels? Why the one who has authority over wind and wave and disease and de the demonic? Why is this one who has authority over all of that as we walk through Mark? And we've seen it again and again. Why does this one remain silent? The answer is that Jesus knows what they are blind to. That he's not there to save himself. He's not there to save himself. Romans 6.23 says, For the, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is going through this to rescue them from the judgment their sins have earned. You see, this whole story, this whole account is part of a much bigger story, a much bigger tapestry where all these threads come together. 
It's a story of promises made from the very beginning. You go all the way back to the very beginning in this account in Genesis, and you see promises made. And where we're at is Jesus, God through Jesus, keeping his promises. It's a story of sin. It's a story of sacrifice. And it's a story of substitutes. Even this account that I skipped right here in Mark 15, it has a substitute offered. Pilate offers up Barabbas. Pilate offers up one and says, take him, he's guilty. Take Barabbas. And yet, we're at a point in this larger story of God's good and loving ways in which there are no other substitutes. There's no substitute for Jesus. From the beginning, from the beginning, God in his love and kindness provided everything for people to believe. So you go all the way back into the garden and they had everything to follow after Jesus. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. We're not just going to put them right there. Adam and Eve represent us in, in so many ways. And you and I have sinned. All have fallen short. And what does God do? God provides a sacrifice. God kills an animal right there in chapter 3, covers them in that. And you have this picture from the very beginning that your sin requires a sacrifice. That your sin requires a sacrifice. That there has to be a covering. Adam and Eve didn't know everything. They didn't have all the answers, but they had enough to follow. And we know this because they have kids and they teach them how to approach God. They teach them that it is through a sacrifice. So, so what happened? What happened? God was there providing everything they needed in the garden. Even in their sin, God provided a way forward. And you move on through, uh, through Genesis and you see this again and again. There is a substitute that is provided. You get to Genesis 17 and you see this. You get to Genesis 22 and you see this, this substitute. And it comes out more and more color, but it is a theme of everything. John Stott, famous pastor, uh, says this about this. The concept of substitution may be said... The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is a man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And so you move from the garden and you move from Genesis and you see that, that Israel being led out of slavery. You get to Exodus and you get to these moments where Israel has been enslaved and now God is providing for them. He sets them free. And part of a longer story, you have this Passover, the literal Passover, in which there had to be a sacrifice and the blood had to be a covering in which the judgment of God would literally pass over them because of the blood. 
You have these pictures that have been given, these signs that have been placed right there for us. You get into Leviticus, which is about order, and here's how how to walk this out in all areas of life. And there's a a tremendous section about uh, the high priest and what the high priest is to do. The day of atonement, and that the high priest is to be the representative of the people coming before God and offering a sacrifice. By that point, it was clear that it was a spotless lamb. They were to to, uh, sacrifice a spotless lamb right here in the temple before God. You see, throughout the Bible, God promises to provide everything. Everything people need for life, everything we need for happiness and for wholeness, to know him and to experience him, to, to recognize what we're here for, God provides And what we've seen on every page of this text is him keeping his word. He keeps his word. But I can feel it. I feel it in myself. I I feel it with others as I have conversations. It's like, yeah, but Chad, that might be true for you. But you were raised here in the United States. Or what about people that were raised in other parts of the world? Or, or like, that's your truth, but my truth is this. Don't, Don't we have all these types of things? But hear me if if. You have truth, and I have truth, and those people over there have truth, then we really have no truth at all. We, what it all amounts to is if, there's, if there is no creator in this, and there, there is no unified truth in this account, then we're really just a bunch of chromosomes, and we're just a bunch of people trying to figure out our next Instagrammable trip. But if the Bible is true, and we have been created in the image of God to think and to act and to feel and to dream big and to, uh, to love deeply, if, we, if the Bible is true, then being cut off from him, being cut off from relationship with others and, and divided internally amongst ourselves, then that really does matter. If the Bible is true, then there's no way for us to have peace on our own. There's no way for us to just manufacture that. If the Bible is true, then it is of utmost importance, what do we do with our sin? And if the Bible is true, then every page helps us understand that. It helps us to see that God just didn't uh, show up and the cross didn't just come out of nowhere. It's actually the biggest and loudest sign that God has given after a series of signs that he's already provided for us. And so Mark is not speaking just on his own. Mark is speaking from a long history right here. Mark's telling this same long story. And even in the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel meaning good news. It means good news. He says, like, all of this is proving what has been said long before. The time of promise is now at hand. This God is going to keep his word. And all of that backstory brings us right back to our text, right back to where we are, and right back to that bigger question of, like, why is Jesus silent in this? Why, out of all of it, if he is who he says he is, is he, does he remain silent? Well, let me give you one more 
One more voice from the Old Testament. One more voice, one more sign that was given. One more testimony in the middle of all of it. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now, before we go forward, this is Isaiah, a prophet, a prophet of Israel speaking of the one who is to come. He didn't know Jesus' name. He didn't know the name, but he knew enough. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And now remembering, now, now we're here at the time, this, this moment in history where they're, they're gathered in Jerusalem, remembering and celebrating this Passover. Jesus walks out to climb this hill where there will be no substitute. And why? Because he is the substitute. Jesus is the perfect substitute. Verse 24 says this. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lot for them to decide what each should take. You catch that? Like all our pictures of the cross are a little uh, sanitized in this because they, once again, they stripped him and shamed him in this moment of just hanging him on this tree, uh, completely exposed to everything. And it was the third hour when they had crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Mark gives only the most basic of descriptions right here. The most basic of descriptions of, uh, of what the reality was so brutal and ugly that people didn't even use the word crucifixion or cross. Like in polite society, you didn't say that. You just moved on and didn't talk about the horrors that were all around you. But catch this, crosses were commonplace in the Roman Empire. And crosses were really the, the foundational piece in which the Roman Empire was built and the audacious claims of the Romans that they have brought peace to the world. This is what their peace looks like. This is what their peace looks like. And in our own ways, when we, when we try to make peace on our own, when we try to, to go about like finding meaning and purpose without God, we're just as foolish. We might not be as violent, but we're just as foolish. When we try to figure out how to stand and be at peace on our own and our own strength, all I end up doing is making things worse. I bring more pain. I bring more hurt. I just make things worse. You see, Jesus was crucified, and, and Mark gives it the most basic of descriptions. It just matter-of-factly states Jesus was crucified. Oh, yeah, and there were, uh, there were two robbers, one on each side. It tells us who is there in this crucifixion scene ends as it opened with mockery, this time with people passing by. 
This time with those just walking by, casting their insults. See what it says in verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Save yourself. See, they're, they're throwing his own words at him. But they're speaking something that's true for all of us, right? And we need to hear this because they say, save yourself. Which is the feeling that we instinctively carry in us. I can save myself. I can clean myself up. I can bring peace to my own chaotic life. I can fix that. I've got this under control. And then we hit a moment in our lives where we're like, does any of this even matter? Because whether we could name it or not, there's something in us that recognizes that I can't do this myself. I can't do this myself. He said he can't even rescue himself. They're yelling these things. This guy can't even rescue himself. He can't do any of these things on his own. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. They too say he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were next to him on the cross even reviled him. You see, the, the, the claim, save yourself, comes right out of our own hearts, doesn't it? And then they're also doing exactly what I do all the time, and I'm guessing you do as well. It's like, like give us a sign, give us a sign. If you would come down, then we would believe. But again, the, the larger question goes, why, why does the one who has authority over all of this not just come down and shut them up? Why does he not just shut all of their mouths, stop this pain, stop all of it? Well, it's because he is the king of the Jews. Because of that, he's got to stay. what he came to do it's that he keeps his promises and he makes a way for people that's who he is this king who keeps his promises they ask for a sign and it is right before them but they miss it they miss it And here as we go forward into this death piece, I want you to recognize that every single detail matters. Every little detail matters right here for us. Pick it up in verse 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness. Darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's easy. People will say, well, it must have been just an eclipse that coincided. But it can't be an eclipse because of the time of the year in which they celebrate Passover. It couldn't be an eclipse right here. Until the ninth hour. So you have the sixth to the ninth hour of darkness. And Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And I skip ahead right here. We're going to pick it up in verse 37. But there's like this cry that comes up from Jesus that comes bubbling out of him, almost like a reflex. And the people confuse it. They're like, he's calling down Elijah. And they miss, they miss the point. They're standing right there. He's calling down Elijah. No, this man who has a life of praying the scriptures, that when tempted goes right to the very word, bursts out. This cry of God. Imagine, just think about it. We were in the garden recently where Jesus is experiencing the darkness and the crushing. And then it seems to have left for a period. And here it is in fullness back. Jesus experienced the absolute total separation from God the Father. And his whole life reflexively cries out. That's what's happening right here in this moment. He's experiencing a drinking the cup of God's wrath. He's experiencing the dark cloud of evil, the evil of Israel, the evil of these particular people, but the evil of the world, evil that cannot be quantified, evil for all of mankind and all of history. It's a cry not of rebellion, but of despair and sadness. And it's exactly what he had predicted. He had talked about the tenants, the wicked tenants who the son has been given, and yet they, they kill him and hand him over. And you say, why? Jesus' death is given to us in just ten matter-of-fact words. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathes his last. And we don't know much about it. We, we don't, we're not, Mark doesn't give a lot of detail right here about what happens. Except what we find out later on in verse 44 is that they were surprised how quickly it happened. Even Pilate asks, like, he's already dead? They, they were surprised at how quickly that happened. The, the other piece that comes up is the very next verse. The very next verse. Mark moves directly from this death of Jesus to the very next verse, which says... And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you're like, wait, what? Why are you talking about curtains and decorations and all these things? But that's not just any curtain. It's the temple curtain. And you go right back to those sacrifices, those descriptions and those uh, guidelines, guidances given to us in Leviticus. And that this holy of holy section of the temple was there and only one person could go in. It was the high priest who could go in once a year. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, following this Passover feast, the Day of Atonement for the high priest to go in and make a sacrifice representing all the people. And right here at the cross, at the death of Jesus, that separation is torn in two. It's no accident that Mark puts it right there. Why does it happen? Well, because the king has come. And what have we said from the very beginning? The king has come and he changes everything. But he's not coming simply as a conquering king. He comes as a perfect high priest. 
and a spotless lamb. That's who Jesus is. Hebrews later on sheds more light on this and unpacks it for us. Those, those who weren't raised in, in Jewish life, those who weren't raised in this time, Hebrews helps us to understand. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And here's where the story goes crazy. (laughs) At least one person recognized what was happening in this story. We have it. We have the incredible words of the Roman centurion standing there on guard, having witnessed who knows how many crucifixions, the one standing there facing Jesus in this moment who's seen all of this, we have the words of the Roman centurion who vindicates this king. Notice what he says. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in, many, that in, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see, what the centurion said was even part of a much bigger story. Truly, this man is the son of God. We heard those same words from the beginning at the baptism of Jesus. We heard those same words come out in in the story of the wicked tenants. We've heard those same words. This is the son of God. And here is the centurion. It wasn't some popular rabbi. It wasn't the high priest standing in front of the veil torn. It wasn't the leading influencer of the day. It wasn't any of those people out there. It wasn't the disciples. It was a Roman centurion in uniform. Standing at his post. Who I think it's safe to say is familiar with death and killings who recognized the signs. When we say, God, give me a sign. We say, God, if you just, if you just answer all my questions, then I would believe. If you just come down off that cross, then I would believe. If you, just, if you just give this or that or whatever your next thing is, friends, if that's you, you're going to have endless questions. If someone tells you they're a follower of Jesus and they don't still have questions, don't follow that person. (laughs) All of us have questions, every single one of these people. The reality is that most people in this story just kept rolling. They they mocked, they laughed. Some beat him. But most just kept moving on, missing all the signs. 
They were so close. They were so close to real peace. They were so close to all their answers. They were so close to hope and to life. They were so close to meaning. They were so close to the king and this God who had come to rescue them. They were so close. And they still just sat there on their hands. And in many ways, you and I do the same things. We could be so close. We, we, we have this given to us, and yet we don't read it. We have the long story given to us, and we're, we don't pay attention to it. We endlessly ask for signs when so many signs have been given from the very beginning, and we ignore them. And you might not be one to be violent against someone, but in our own ways, we might react just like these people if we're not careful, where we see the king and we just walk on by. We just walk on by. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with the cross? What are we supposed to do with Mark's account here? And how do we not just walk away and say, that was another nice story I heard. We sang some songs about it. What are we to do? Well, first of all, see what the centurion saw. See, ask God to give you eyes to see what that centurion saw. The centurion who didn't believe in in any of these Jewish ways. The centurion who thought Caesar was king. But who saw Jesus high and lifted up and recognized him for who he is. Ask God to give you ears to hear. Ears to hear with faith. What's been announced from the very beginning? Ask God to give you those ears. Ask God to help you to believe that this sacrifice offered through this substitute Jesus is who he says he is. And finally, draw near. Just as the author of Hebrews says, draw near to this king. Draw near to this sacrifice. Draw near to this priest who invites us to his throne of grace draw near. You probably have questions just like I have questions. Uh, There are plenty of things that I read in the Bible that I'm like, God, wait a second, how does this work with that? And yet we have everything that we need to trust and believe. He's given more than enough signs and he's shown himself to be true. This is a God who has made promises and he keeps them. Will you bow your heads with me?